Colleagues, welcome to Global Ed Talks. As you know, a series of interviews that we have been conducting both last year and this year. Uh, I am Anthony McKay, CEO and President of the National Centre on Education and the Economy. And today I'm joined by Professor Michael Fullen. Michael, welcome. We're delighted to have you with us in the third of our series this year. Thanks very much. It's so great to join you, especially with these issues we're going to talk about. Well, Michael, uh, people know you well. Uh, and as you know, uh, these Ed Talks are seriously global. Uh, they wander across multiple geographies, uh, as you do. Uh, so there's a consistency here uh, between uh, our objective to ensure that we are tackling issues that are facing educators in multiple jurisdictions. But of course, we have a particular concern for educators here in the US and of course our, our near neighbours in Canada. And people will know that for many years you were the Dean of the Ontario Institute for Studies uh, in Education and of course now are uh, Professor Emeritus of the University of Toronto. Uh, you have been leading major global initiative that people would know of as new pedagogies for deep learning. And of course have been simultaneously advising policymakers, practitioners, and practitioners advising you, which I think you'll make that point. And of course, deeply engaged in research work that you're bringing to us through multiple publications. And I could mention a number, uh, but I do just want to pick up on two publications that uh, have been recently released. You've had the updated version of uh, Leading in a Culture of Change, and the most recent just released, The Devil is in the Details, System Solutions for Equity, Excellence, and Student Wellbeing. And of course, you'll make the point I know that uh, this involves leadership of a more nuanced nature, which of course is the title of another most recently released publication. So, Michael, it's fantastic that we can draw upon that body uh, of knowledge that uh, has been gathered through serious on-the-ground work uh, over many years and intensively through the New Pedagogies for Deep Learning initiative. But let me just start really with the biggest picture. Uh, you and I were in Morocco in January at the International Congress for School Effectiveness and Improvement. And you and a few others coined, I think, a phrase about the decisive decade. And indeed, there was a contribution that you made to the Congress that positioned this decade as crucial because we have been facing catastrophes and we definitely want fewer catastrophes and a movement toward a sustainable globe. This was pre-coronavirus. So if we ever needed to put an underlined, very, very clear underline to this argument, we've got it right now. Why do you call it the decisive decade? Well, actually, I didn't mean for uh, it to be followed by a punctuated reality that we have. No. Uh, you're quite right. It was in January, and it is, uh, in some ways, the lead-in to our book on the devil is in the details. Uh, I, I call it sometimes the battle of the century, but I also said it's coming to such a head that we have an opportunity or are going to be forced to deal with it in some fashion. 
And I think the two main um, problems on the one side, that is the one contender, the negative contender, is climatological catastrophe and galloping inequality uh, across the world. It's been going, both of those have been going for uh, 50 years, but they've really intensified uh, uh, in a rapid fashion in the last three or four years. So it's also spilling over into education. Uh, if we had more time, we could uh, also underline the fact that regular schooling in most of our countries has become less and less engaging for higher and higher percentage of students. Almost 80% of students now, by the time you get grade 11 and 12, are not really deeply plugged into learning the way we're, we, we need it to be. So I'm really posing uh, these uh, two big challenges, which incidentally feed on each other. That is, the greater the inequality, the more we mishandle the climate challenge and, by, and back and forth. And so we have, uh, we have to have a response. I'm saying that response is in the educational domain uh, accompanied by certain policies in the general uh, political domain, but definitely education has to shift its role from being a passive consumer of a bad society or societies to an agent of transformation. That's what's at stake. So just before we talk about the educational response, the learning response to the challenges that you've identified, let me just put the spotlight on young people themselves because you've identified a generation of young people who on the one hand are absolutely motivated to make a difference. Uh, you could actually position this argument as something like they, they wish to become planetary stewards. Yep. On the other hand, they have heightened levels of anxiety. How do you ensure that those young people who are coming into learning systems are open to the kind of learning which we'll talk about in a moment so that, in fact, it, it motivates them to make the change to make the difference that we need. And yet at the same time, we are trying to control heightened levels of anxiety. Well, we have um, incorporated in our thinking uh, the continuing developments of neuroscience and have a neuroscientist, Gene Clinton, who's a core member of our team now, because we wanted to address the well-being side of the learning equation much more explicitly. So uh, the, the answer to your question in one way is to, first of all, know that a certain degree of anxiety is healthy. That is, the anxiety and learning always go together if the learning is at all worth itself. So it's not the presence of anxiety, it's when it gets excessive that it's a problem. And what we've seen now in education is that anxiety has increased beyond the healthy part into the unhealthy part in the last five years, the last two years. So uh, the answer uh, I think is, comes from that directly because now that we've turned to well-being and learning, we're helping students deal with both of those. And I, I wanna say about the, the, the student role is really one of change maker, individually and collectively, not by themselves, because a couple of things have to happen. First of all, they have to be good learners, not first of all, but a part of that, they have to be good learners. You can't just go around changing the world if you're not learning ins and outs of uh, uh, yeah. how things work and what the consequences yeah. are. Yeah. So I think the changing learning is a big part of it, which means they need adults, which means teachers' role, which ha has to change into enabling the learning 
cultivating the learning. So there's the quality of learning aspect to this. And then when those, when that learning feeds into something that grabs the interest of students, which teachers can enable, teachers will find tremendous response and we'll see students become much more powerful in their learning and much more uh, important for societal development. But they won't, be, they won't be out there isolated. They will be interacting. They want to interact with adults to get things done. So it's going to come together that way. So, okay. So young people as change makers, yes, individually and collectively. Therefore, their agency has to be of a kind that can seriously make a difference. That means they'll need to be complex problem solvers. And in your language, that means they're going to need to be engaged in deep learning. What's deep learning? Uh, deep learning, uh, the first way of putting it is it's quality learning that sticks with you the rest of your life. So even if, if I were to ask people, what kind of learning in your past has stuck with you all the way through, we will get a lot of examples. Actually, most of them will come from the classroom. They will be about life and what they did and how they worked on, a, on something. So the shift in the pedagogy, which is crucial, the way students learn and what they focus on, the shift in what is the, the focus of it, of deep learning. And there's really uh, two core aspects. One is the, uh, what we call the global competencies, the six uh, character, citizenship, collaboration, communication, creativity, and critical thinking. Those six C's, which we've operationalized with people in the field across uh, eight countries, nine countries, uh, are really key to the competencies that will be required for students to learn better and to learn to become more effective as change makers. So that's one of two things. The second thing has to be the pedagogy that surrounds it. That is, you have to really have a relationship with other students, with parents, and certainly with teachers and leaders of teachers, that they, uh, that they develop the, the change in pedagogy, which is the active learner, the problem solving, uh, the creativity and we have some of that now in project-based learning but usually it's separated as a project we're talking about immersing and changing the entire learning experience of students and teachers and that's what we built with uh, with these countries and schools or at least the subparts in those countries so it really is a pretty radical change for sure but we've got there's operational elements to it so those are the two pieces I'll just say as a footnote, because we'll come back to it, it means that other parts of the system have to change. Clearly, this requires a very different kind of pedagogical response. It requires a learning environment that's highly conducive to the development of deep understanding. And therefore, it requires a more enabling system that you've just identified. So tell us something of how you would need to redesign the system at multiple levels. Uh, because when we think about the system, we sometimes think about the school, we think about the district, we think about the state, and there's a whole set of governance arrangements that are in place. So if we're going to ensure that this kind of deep learning takes place, what would be the features of the redesigned system and what would be the extent of the shift that's required in order to create those enabling conditions? Well, let me start with a little bit of good news, which is uh, you don't have to go illegal to do the work I'm talking about. The, these global competencies are already in the big vision statements. If you take the 
image of this of the young people of the future in Australia uh, or or other things we have in our curriculum, British Columbia, uh, all everywhere you go, you see a reference to the global competencies. So legitimacy is not the problem. They say are, but what is the problem is they're not showing up in the teaching and learning operational part. So uh, there are big changes to your uh, to your question, and I'm going to start with. Uh, 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 we also actually, because of our value of practitioners, feel that a lot of change will be best formulated from the ground up, uh, that is developed and developed and developed upward, with hopefully policymakers going in the direction to meet people halfway or whatever. So we have a number of successful examples of entire districts who've taken this on. So I just take that chunk of it. That's still a big chunk. Uh, Ottawa Catholic district in, uh, in Ottawa, Canada, 83 schools. They started with seven schools uh, five years ago in the program. They added eight, that's 15. Then they went to all 83, and now they have a full system example. It's operating within, I'll say, the constraints of the policy of the province, uh, but it's not conflicting with them uh, other than, you know, how do you get the time to do everything? So I think part of the good news is once you start to do it, and one of the things about this solution I want to emphasize, if it's ground up, that is from the ground, it's going to be more powerful, more accurate, uh, and have much more momentum. And it's only in the best interest of leaders to recognize that this is doing the work of the system that they would want anyways. <clears throat> so I'm pretty comfortable with how to get started at it in the school and the district level. Uh, so that the main issue then becomes, what are the policies? The policies, uh, if you're in Australia or Canada, it's the state or the province. Uh, in the US, it's the state plus the, uh, plus the federal sometimes. Uh, but that's where we have, uh, that's where we're stuck right now. We are stuck with a system that, uh, that is not changing. Uh, I wrote about it for you, actually, for, for CSE, uh, wrong drivers problem, where yes. a lot of the drivers that are put there I also uh, recently revisited Thomas Kuhn and the, uh, the, the scientific revolutions where he says, even when something doesn't work, even when it's obvious to more and more people, it doesn't change until there's an alternative, a viable alternative, he said. So I think where we're stuck now is right now in between, we're almost in the time, we're finding more and more uh, policymakers are saying, yeah, we, we, we know the system isn't working. 80% uh, of the kids are not involved. Teachers are alienated. Parents are wondering what's going on. It's not working, but they don't, uh, they don't see their way to the change. So I, I think uh, that where we're faced right now, and this is why we think 2020 is such a key year, is that it is out in the open that it needs to be changed. There are ideas like deep learning that are well worked out. And what we have to do is take it to the policy level as well as the practice level and do both of those simultaneously over the next uh, part. Well you, well, you know, Michael, that um, uh, we are fellow travellers uh, in uh, this endeavour. NCE obviously has the same commitment to redesigning the system using our own core policy framework and nine building blocks is often referenced. We are very much in the business of uh, growing the capacity of leaders to do the kind of work that's necessary to bring into play a redesigned system. So you talk about system leaders, we talk about system leaders, say something more about them because I take it if we're clear about 
deep learning and we're clear about the elements of the system that will be need to be redesigned to support that we must also be clear about the kind of leadership that will be required in order to ensure in your language and ours that the system dynamic works so how do you see the leadership challenge in this context uh, in the book on the devil, uh, chapter one is, uh, covers a lot of the problems. And one of the bases of my recent thinking has been to look closely at what evolutionary uh, biologists are saying about what is the nature of evolution over the last 10,000 years and however you want to uh, uh, chunk it up. And basically, they're uh, I'm going to give you their obvious conclusion, at least from their point of view, but also a hidden gem in the uh, and one of them that'll lead me to your question. The obvious con uh, conclusion that they say is that evolution in one sense has always bailed us out. That is the combination of how would they do it, genes, uh, environment and culture has always favored us in the long run. That is humankind improves. But they say now we're beginning to doubt whether that's gonna to continue to happen. So there needs to be some agency uh, to changing the system. Now the part I wanted to uh, mention is one of them uh, said it this way, the reason I like evolution, he said, was because it's relentlessly bottom up. That's his phrase, relentlessly bottom up. That's why he likes it as a change agent. And this is how I want to answer your question. We have seen now in with students and teachers and schools, and we, we add systems to it, so it's not just individuals, that there is the power to do this. Now we go back to leadership. In the book, Nuance, the key uh, conclusion is that the leaders who are effective are ones that jointly determine the solution with those that are in the midst of the problem. Students, teachers, others, jointly determine the solution. And, uh, and what does this mean for leadership? Uh, one of my colleagues, Roger Martin, who was uh, a dean of the business school in, in the University of Toronto when I was dean, wrote a great book on changing systems and he said the leaders that are most effective uh, are capable of being experts and apprentices simultaneously. That is, they have good ideas and they're willing to uh, lead with those ideas, but they know they have a lot to learn. So they're learning from, if you like, relentlessly bottom up. They're learning from teachers, students, community members and that. So the kind of leader we need, and uh, I, you know, the analogy I've used before uh, the uh, one of the CEOs from Honeywell, for example, that I used that uh, retired, they asked him, you're being successful, what's the most important thing you've learned about leadership? And he said it this way, he said, the most important thing is to be right at the end of the meeting, not at the beginning of the meeting. That's a metaphor. And it means that yeah. he jointly determined the solution with the group in the ins and outs of learning. And you know what? it moves more quickly than the traditional way. The traditional way of having a strong, competent leader, it looks like it's fast because they're passing policies, but it's slow because the policies aren't being implemented. Yeah. Not, it takes forever. Whereas this way, a little, we call it start slow to go fast. Uh, it, it takes some energy to do the jointly determined, but once it kicks in, it accelerates. That's my optimism. But you also make it clear that the leadership needs to be exercised at multiple levels. Now, whatever the language you want to use, but certainly at the centre, at the middle, at the local, and you talk about the concept of connected autonomy. Just say a word about how that kind of leadership will 
release the energy of all to be able to drive this agenda? Yeah, I must say we've been struggling for a decade around autonomy collaboration. And so people say, you know, there's not enough autonomy, just leave us alone, we'll teach. That's what teachers sometimes say. Others say, no, collaboration is the key. And uh, as we've sorted that out, and I'm happy that we have come up with the concept connected autonomy because it is the accurate one, is that it turns out it's neither autonomy nor collaboration. That's the answer. It's the interaction of the two. And what we've seen in uh, collaboration is 90%, I don't know what give a percentage, a big percentage of collaboration uh, doesn't necessarily lead to improvement. There's nothing automatically good about it. It's only whether the individuals develop along with the group and whether they're doing the right things and coming up with great insights and evaluating it together and coming up with what we call a culture of accountability. So uh, I am saying then that the leadership here, connected autonomy means what it says. It means that I have a degree of my being my own person. I, I, know, I, I know ideas and I contribute to the group. Now we're getting into the connected part, but I also learn from the group. But on any given day, I'm my own person. On another day, I'm helping the group be effective. And that there's a beautiful relationship back and forth between autonomy and collaboration. Remember, it's not just about anything. We have goals, we have evidence, we have, uh, we have the specificity of impact. All of those things have to be built in. And the leadership has to be much more what we call precise not prescriptive, but much more precise about the solutions. The solutions are around deep learning. And once you bring this out into the open and it's working, we can see tremendous endorsement of people who perhaps at the beginning weren't interested in the change, didn't think it would work. But once they're part of it and they see it works, they jump on board too. So there's a really kind of a virtual spiral if you do deep learning effectively. Okay, and there's an interrelationship and interdependency uh, with leadership exercised at the at the centre, let's say uh, at the state level, at the district level, at the school level, just say a word about how you see that operating. Well, I just, again, I want to go from the bottom up, but cover everybody. Uh, that the first new thing to recognise is students as leaders. I don't mean voice, student voice, being on a sure. council. I mean, no. I'm in charge of my learning. I'm working. I'm learning with others. I can describe it. Uh, here it is, and we're seeing fantastic examples of this kind of learning on the part of individuals, students, and combinations of students. And then you see, uh, you talk to teachers who are in the deep learning. They're describing their own learning. They're describing learning of each other. So you get this cascade upward of learning, uh, but this really means then if I'm a leader at the center, uh, president, prime minister, or state superintendent, or whatever, that I have to think that I am coordinating a system of connected autonomy. I have to think that I'm going to be influential because I interacted enough with the other elements that I know what connects. I have to be able to be a learner as part of that. So it's a much more sophisticated leadership. Yeah. And I'm, I'm thinking yeah. the leadership we have these days, and I'm not picking on anyone, and I remember we're talking all levels, is just, I'm, I'm gonna hope that it's fading out of the old model of leadership and if we're going to survive and be effective, the new model of leadership at all levels is going to be much more like the way I'm just describing it. Well, let me, let me finally take you back to the opening where we were talking about how 
the coronavirus is bringing into sharp relief. The, the flaws, the schism, the weaknesses of our current system in relation to the most vulnerable, to those who are at risk. And you have made it clear that that has been the case, but it is so visible uh, at this moment. And so the commitment to think about a learning system for all that will guarantee that we're graduating young people with the capacity to actually bring about the kind of sustainable future. And we've had conversations about that in relation to an AI world, to the complex problem solving, the wicked problems that we are facing. You've raised all of that. It's not an accident that you then come back in your most recent book and say, we need deep learning for equity, for excellence and for well-being. Why is it that you are bringing into such sharp relief what you called galloping inequality? Well, I think what uh, COVID has done is it's pulled back the curtain, if you like. Uh, now you see what, what's behind the scenes. And it's not pretty. People knew it in general, but they didn't know it viscerally. They see it viscerally now. And it's only been two months since the shutdown. It's amazing. And so that's one thing. The second thing is that I remember when you interviewed Andreas and you asked him about the response to COVID, he said he's been incredibly impressed by the response, uh, innovative response at the individual level, but not at the system level. And this is, our, this is my point too, that we have seen coming out of this enormous response that because people have been liberated. Those that were somewhat prepared and frustrated have been liberated. Those that weren't doing well are doing less well because now they're even less supported. So the, uh, the goal now, and I think we need to make it simultaneously a short-term and a mid to long-term goal. The short-term goal is to make sure those that are most vulnerable are helped immediately. And there's all kinds of responses of our deep learning people are doing that in our cases. Then the second, and on the heels of that, almost immediately, you have to start leveraging into the changes we've been discussing in this interview so that this is the agenda. And I'm happy to say that in the bigger field worldwide, we've had more requests to take on deep learning in the last two months than we did in the last two years, newcomers, because they recognize the opportunity. So, I, but I think people are going to have to realize that as a leader, it's going to require a degree of courage to come into this field uh, and, that, uh, and to do this. And one, one of the things I found a nuance about courage, actually, was not that people were courageous and jumped in, but because they did things and they worked, they felt more courageous in the middle of it and got more courageous after that. So I'm optimistic if we get enough people doing it, they will be firm, firmly committed and will have the courage, not the confidence, but the courage because they know what works, to team up and partner uh, including students that this will change the system and maybe it can be done in three or four or five years, major step forwards. Uh, so I think that's where we are. If we don't take advantage of it now, it will destroy us later. Michael, uh, let me uh, say two things in closing. One, as you've identified, we have a growing alliance of those who are committed to this agenda. This is increasingly the shared agenda. And I want to acknowledge the fact that you have been so influential in shaping and informing that agenda and in leading it.
Uh, it's been fantastic to have the opportunity to talk to you about it. Thank you very much indeed for uh, being with us today on Global Ed Talks. Thank you. And just remember one thing, if I could at the end, that, uh, that ec deep learning is good for all students. It's especially good for students who have been disaffected. They are going to be the most uh, responsive and then the whole system will be in the right direction. Thank you for having me, Tony. Thank you, Michael.